Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, but the rest of the people cast lots to bring, to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine-tenths remained in the other cities. And the people blessed all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. Now these are the heads of the provinces who lived in Jerusalem and in the cities of Judah. Each lived on his own property in their cities, the Israelites, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, and the descendants of Solomon's servants. And then shifting into the middle part of chapter 12. Again, the walls have been rebuilt. Now it's time to dedicate and time to celebrate. Now at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites from all their places to bring them to Jerusalem so that they might celebrate the dedication with gladness, with hymns of thanksgiving and with songs to the accompaniment of cymbals, harps, and lyres. So the sons of the singers were assembled from the district around Jerusalem and from the villages of the, of the Netophathites, from Beth Gilgal and from their fields in Geba and Asmaveth. For the singers had built themselves villages around Jerusalem. The priests and the Levites purified themselves and they also purified the people, the gates and the wall. Then I had the leaders of Judah come up on top of the wall and I appointed two great choirs, the first proceeding to the right on top of the wall toward the refuse gate. Hoshaniah and half of the leaders of Jerusalem followed them. Then in verse 38, the second choir proceeded to the left while I followed them with half of the people on the wall above the tower of furnaces to the broad wall and above the gate of Ephraim by the old gate, by the fish gate, and Tower of Hananel, and the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Sheep Gate, and they stopped at the Gate of the Guard. Then the two choirs took their stand in the house of God, so did I, and half of the officials with me. Verse 43, And on that day they offered great sacrifices, and they rejoiced because God had given them great joy. Even the women and children rejoiced, so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard from afar. On that day, men were also appointed over the chambers for the stores, the contributions, the first fruits and the tithes, to gather into them from the fields of the cities the portions required by the law for the priests and Levites. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who served. For they performed the worship of their God in the service of purification together with the singers and the gatekeepers in accordance with the command of David, and of his son Solomon. For in the days of David and Asaph, in ancient times, there were leaders of the singers, songs of praise and hymns of thanksgiving to God. So all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and Nehemiah gave the portions due the singers and the gatekeepers as each required and set apart the consecrated portion for the Levites. And the Levites set apart the consecrated portion for the sons of Aaron. Blessed be the reading of God's word. So like I said, the book of Nehemiah is coming to a close. And um, sometimes when you take a look at Scripture, trying to figure out how to preach that section, really chapter 11 and 12, they really kind of fit together. Because both chapters talk about sacrifice. And we'll see there's going to be three things here that we'll take a look at with this kind of heart of sacrifice unto God. But ever since David became king of the city of Jerusalem, Jerusalem was the epicenter 
of worship for the people of Israel, for the Jews. And now, because of God's grace and the leadership of Nehemiah, now the walls are up. And it's time to celebrate what God had done, but there's still a problem. The city's empty. <laughs> there's nobody living there. It's nice to have a city. It's nice to have walls, but you've got to have people too. And so, much of this chapter is dealt with, how do we repopulate the city? And Nehemiah, he understood that if this nation is going to be strong, then the capital of the nation, Jerusalem itself, has to be strong. But for that city to be strong, the people are going to have to sacrifice. And this morning we'll see three sacrifices that the people made to make the city, Jerusalem, strong again. And those three same sacrifices we as God's people are called to do today as well. So, what sacrifices does God's people, does God call His people to give? What sacrifices does God call His people to give? First thing, God calls His people to give their lives to Him. We are called as God's people to submit our lives unto God. And many people claim Christ, claim to be a Christian, but to be honest with you, they live for themselves. Look at verses 1 through 3 again. It says, now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, but the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine-tenths remained in the other cities. And the people blessed all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. Now these are the heads of the province who lived in Jerusalem, but in the cities of Judah each lived on his own property in their cities, the Israelites, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, and the descendants of Solomon's servants." Understand that cities matter. John F. Kennedy said this. He said, we will neglect our cities to our own peril. For in neglecting them, we neglect the nation. And I think that Nehemiah had the same philosophy. He understood that if the Jews were going to survive, if the nation of Israel was going to be strong, then the city of Jerusalem, its capital, had to be strong. It had to be repopulated the people had to return to the city. Now, we look around. I mean, we have cities that are just overflowing, right? I don't even know how many people live in L.A. Over 7 million, I know that. But even our suburbs are overflowing, right? Well, you have the city. The walls are up, but nobody's there. Basically, they're empty. And the problem is spelled out in Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 4. It says, Now the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few, and the houses were were not built. Now, there's a number of reasons why the city was not occupied. Understand that the walls had been torn down for almost 150 years at this point. That meant the city was very vulnerable. Now, if, if you're somebody that comes back to Jerusalem, you've been in captivity, you're going to probably want to go to your ancestral lands, and it's actually safer to live outside a city that has broken down walls than to be in the city because you're kind of trapped in the city once you're in, but it's easy to have access as an invader because they can just crawl over the walls. So it's better to be in, in the country because if you hear somebody's coming, you can flee. That's one reason. And the city had been ravaged by Babylon. From 605 to 586 B.C., when Babylon invaded Jerusalem, they destroyed it. I mean, they destroyed everything, the temple, the walls, and all the houses. So the city was absolutely in shambles. It would have been a very difficult place to live. And so most of the people, they lived outside the city. 
But now because of God's grace and Nehemiah's leadership, the walls and the gates are restored. And there's a reason why the people needed to be back into the city. First, it was just for protection. You would have more people within the walls to actually work together to protect the city. And so it was important for Nehemiah to help the people understand this commitment that he was asking them to make, that the city is up. This is where the temple of God is now housed, and the temple has been rebuilt. Zerubbabel took care of that. Worship has been reestablished. The people gave to that. Now it's time to come back to the city. This is the holy city of God. But there's another reason. It's a strong witness. God has done a work. I mean, the people have been gone for, for years and years, and now God brought them back. The city should be strong. It should be thriving. God should be honored by this. But there's another reason. God has a purpose in it. There's a reason why He brought the people back, not only as a witness, but He has a purpose for them as a people, as a nation. And so it's so important that they honor God in this way to sacrifice and to move into the city. And trust me, it was a step of faith to go from your ancestral lands back to this place that actually was a dangerous place to live. Now, Nehemiah, he loves listing names. As you've noticed, there have been whole sections of Scripture that I've kind of jumped over, really for your sake. Chapter 3, he lists a bunch of names, and it was all the workers on the walls. Chapter 7, he listed the names of the people who came back with Zerubbabel. Chapter 8, he records the names of the leaders who kind of gathered together for this Bible conference. Chapter 10, we had 84 different names of the leaders who had put their stamp on the covenant before God, kind of making a covenant with all, that all the people would serve God again. And now we have a bunch of other names really listed between chapters 11 and 12 today. But there's reasons for the names being listed. One, it's, it's Nehemiah wanting to acknowledge all those who participated and were honoring God with their lives and, and, and they rebuilt the walls. I mean, this was a very, very important thing and Nehemiah wants to make sure that they see this. Also, understand that this is Scripture. This is God's Word. And there are many people that we may not notice that they've done something for the Lord, but this is maybe God's way of showing us, hey, He sees it. And Nehemiah lists many different names here. Now, the list starts in chapter 11 and goes into chapter 12. And I want you to understand that there's a strategy here behind Nehemiah's plan. He has a plan here. And the first strategy for Nehemiah is that his plan is to repopulate the city. It's important that the people understand that there needs to be people within the walls, not just in the area. Because basically here, Nehemiah begins to list who was there. Basically, the, there were two tribes there, the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. If you remember, Israel had split into the northern tribes, which were ten, and then the southern tribes, which were two. And the northern tribes had been attacked by Assyria in 722 B.C., and they had been taken off into captivity. Later, the Babylonians came in 605 B.C., and in 586, they were taken back into captivity. But now God brings them back. And so primarily, you have Judah and Benjamin. He talks about Judah in verses 4 through 6, and Benjamin in, in verses 7 through 9. And then he starts to bring in lists of other people. He has the priests in verses 10 through 14, the Levites 
in 18, then he has the gatekeepers in 19 through 20, the temple servants, and then a variety of officers in verse 24, and then it's followed up with a bunch of different little cities that kind of surround the, uh, the city of Jerusalem. Also, chapter 12, he starts to talk about their ancestry. Where did they come from? And particularly the priests, because that's important. You have to have that heritage. And so he speaks about that starting in chapter 12 from verse 1 to verse 26. And that's where Zerubbabel came back and brought the priests with him. That was in 538 B.C. Right now it's 445 B.C. And so what finally ends up happening is, is about 10% of the, the adult males come to the city. And we know that there's going to be about 3,044 men that actually come and live in the city now, if you add their children and the wives, there's going to be at least about 10,000 people within the city. That means that the total population around Jerusalem right now is about 100,000 people. And so, Nehemiah's first idea, his strategy, is we have to repopulate. His second strategy is organization. We need to organize the people. Understand, this is not a ragtag group of refugees. They understand their lineage. They understand that they have ancestral lands, so they come back and they want to find where did their ancestors live, and when they come back, they want to live on that land. Starting in verse 25, it talks about the people from Judah, and in verse 31, it talks about the people of Benjamin. Verse 25 says, now as for the villages with their fields, some of the sons of Judah lived in Kareth Arba, in the towns in Dibon, and in the towns of Jechazabel and its villages. So there are 16 different provinces and a number of towns in each province that Judah lived in. The people of Benjamin, in verse 31, it says, the sons of Benjamin also lived in Geba onward and at Michmash, Ajah, at Bethel and its towns. And so you have Judah and Benjamin. And then you have a variety of gifted people, and Nehemiah wanted to organize them. Starting in verse 10, you have the priests. They're the ones who officiated the altar and the sacrifices, there was about 1,200 priests. Then you have 284 of the Levites, and they assisted the priests. Some also super, supervised the maintenance of the temple. You had about 172 men who were appointed as gatekeepers. They were also called to, to guard the temple. And why does the temple need to be guarded? Because the tithes are given. <laughs> There's money and gifts given in there. And then you have all these other people also serving the Lord. Now, I don't know if you know this, but on a Sunday service, when we have a service here, there are a number of people that serve, dozens and dozens and dozens of people that give of their time and their energy so that we can have a service right here. You have a couple dozen people serving right now in the children's ministry with Amy, upstairs and downstairs, ministering to your children. We have people out there that are ushers, it's probably about 10 to 12 of them, Right now, making sure that this, this building is clean and that people are properly seated. You also have greeters. Hopefully, you were greeted by somebody as you walked in. There's also people who prepare the coffee. There's somebody right now also filming the service, and this is being streamed live on Facebook Live. We have people doing sound out there. We also have a security team. I don't know if you knew that to make sure that we're safe, and they're making sure that nothing, you know, is happening around the building, and on and on I could go people being faithful to serve. And that's a very small number of people compared to here. You had up to 2,000 people serving the temple on a regular basis. That takes organization, repopulation, organization. Nehemiah's third strategy was participation. It takes many different types of people to participate. 
But I think what's significant here is the idea about availability. The people, they understood that this was God's work. And so they made themselves available. And I think that's so important for God's people. That's the question, isn't it? Are you available to God? Or do you have requirements to your availability? Well, God, I'm willing to do this, of course, but really this? Because I think what we see in the people, particularly at that time, their hearts were given over. We'd seen earlier already through our study that the people had surrendered all to the Lord. They literally put a stamp on a piece of paper said, Lord, whatever you want, whatever you need, we are in. And I hope you understand what a difficult thing it is for the people to surrender to actually move into this city. Very difficult thing. It says here in verse 1 that they cast lots so that one out of every ten they would leave their families, they would leave their friends, they would leave their ancestral homes, they'd leave the protection that they had in their village to go into a city that was very difficult to live in. Look at verse 1 again, it says, Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, but the rest of the people cast lots to bring one to ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine-tenths remained in other cities. Guys, that's sacrificial. They're willing to say, yes, Lord, we're willing to be part of that, you casting lots. But then there were more that were even more sacrificial. Verse 2 says there were people that actually volunteered. They say, Lord, we willingly give ourselves. We will leave our ancestral land. We will leave the safety of our village. We will leave our friends and our family, and we will come into the city. Look at verse 2. It says, and the people blessed all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. Now, I don't, I don't know how they blessed them. Maybe they just said thank you. And the reason they blessed them is because they understood that these people were giving up comfort, giving up lands, giving up security, actually going to live in a dangerous place. It was a great sacrifice. Now, I saw a couple of weeks ago we had this ministry fair, and I was really encouraged by that. We had 83 people sign up to serve the Lord. That's a lot for a church our size that they came forward and said, I want to serve the Lord in some way. And they literally, if you will, put their stamp on a piece of paper. And you understand you signed that before the Lord, right? Because when you say, I will serve, really the test is, will you show up? And so it's one thing to say, oh, yeah, I'm in. It's another thing to actually be in. And so there are some people that signed up at the sound booth. I think we had two or three. Okay, they're going to show up, I hope, to, to do sound. There were others that said, I want to be an usher. There were others that signed up for the Stephen ministry and so on and so on. And the test will be, I signed up and I really meant it. These people meant it. They showed up and they gave up a lot to be in the city. Now, you may never be asked to do some dramatic ministry. But can I tell you something? God sees, and He knows. And He sees the sacrifice when it's done unto Him, and it matters to God. Repopulation, organization, participation. The final one is what I call religious commitment. Nehemiah understood there had to be a deeper commitment than to just say, hey, I want to be part of the group. These people were committed to God first. And they understood that this repopulation of the city, this coming together to make sure that the city was strong, it was a work of God. 
that it is God who had brought them out of captivity and reestablished them in the land. And trust me, it was not easy for these people. It was very difficult. And Nehemiah knew that if a people are going to be banded together, then it better be in a, diff- a deeper philosophy than just kind of being part of a group. It, it had to be that we were going to honor God with our very lives. That kind of commitment brings true unity, and it sustains a people and a nation, particularly when times are difficult. Commentator Cyril Barber puts it like this. He said, a strong religious commitment is essential if a democratic form of administration is to succeed. Without adequate spiritual values, it is hard, if not impossible, to retain the idea of obligation and responsibility. Individualism cannot long be held in check by the concept of a calling embodying good works and self-restraint alone. When this control is weakened, legislation takes the place of spiritual convictions and becomes the foundation of the community. And with the increase in legislation, there is a corresponding increase in bureaucracy with a minimizing of efficiency and a loss of value of individual personal worth. But Jerusalem right there had this religious base, people committed to God. And so this is brilliant. The strategy of repopulation, organization, participation, and religious commitment, it meant that the people had this foundation laid so that the city would become strong quickly. Now, there are another number of other things I just want to point out in this section. In verse 23, Nehemiah states that the king of Persia actually helped support the ministry at the temple. He actually gave money to the service, and I think the reason he did that is because he understood that the people would be praying for him. Verse 23 says, For there was a commandment from king concerning them and a firm regulation for the song leaders of that day. He gave money to the temple worship. Verses 25 through 36, Nehemiah names all the villages that surround the area, but the bottom line is that the people were willing to move into the city. Now understand, when you move into the city, by this time, since it had been broken down walls for 150 years with almost nobody in there, all the houses had been broken down, there is grass and weeds and trees growing up in places. They don't have large freeways and roadways like we do, so they have narrow walkways and they're probably way overgrown. And so to move in, it means hard work, hard labor. But the people say, yes, Lord, we will sacrifice. Now, Nehemiah knew that biblically the people's religious heritage was important to them. And so he started to talk in chapter 12 about Zerubbabel and how he brought the people back. He says, there were the priests and the Levites who came with Zerubbabel, the son of Shittiel, and Seirai, and Jeremiah, and Ezra, and so on. There were 22 leaders that came back with Zerubbabel that were priests. And from their line is where Nehemiah now has priests serving there. But all the actions of the people there were characterized by people who did not have limits on God. They gave up their rights and their limits for Him. And I think that's the question I want to pose to you this morning. Do you have limits? You say, yeah, yeah, Lord, I, I understand the sacrifice that you made for me. But really, are you expecting me to really, really sacrifice for you? Because when you say you're all in for Christ, He hears that. And that means all in. Matter of fact, Jesus put it like this in Luke 9, 23. He says, and He was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself take up his cross daily 
and follow me. That means daily putting yourself to death, daily putting down your rights for the sake of Christ, putting down your own desires to follow Christ's desires. I don't know if you know this, but to come after me, it's a statement like the way a lover would come after their mate. It's passionate. It's relational. And you're saying, I am, Lord, going to pursue you the way someone who is so in love with someone else would pursue one. We are called as Christians to have a life of sacrifice. We just looked at that, right? Paul said, I want you to be what? Living sacrifices. And that your lives are to be holy and pleasing. And that is spiritual service of worship. Our bodies are no longer our own. Our lives are no longer our own. But the question is, have you have set up some kind of a limit to what you will say yes to? Now, guys, I see in our church so many people who are faithful. And it blesses me as a pastor that people are willing to, to give of their time, their talents, and their resources to this church. But I want to highlight one. I want to talk to you about Greg and Lois Cunningham this morning. Now, Greg and Lois Cunningham are members of our church, but they're also local missionaries. And Greg is the founder and the president of a ministry called CBR, that's Center, the Center for Bioethical Reform. And it's a pro-life organization that is on the very front lines, and they protect unborn babies. Now, they fight this on a number of fronts. They fight it through legislation to try to help voters understand that we have a right to take a stand. They do it through education, and sometimes they even do it through confrontation. Now, what you see here is called the GAP Project. And the GAP Project is a project where CBR and their volunteers, they go onto college campuses throughout the United States. And they, they post pictures of aborted babies. And, and, and they, they try to, to cause people to come and talk to them. It, it, it's so that you confront people with truth. Because when you see a picture of an aborted baby, you cannot deny that that is a life taken. And it causes these college kids to literally stop, and hundreds and hundreds of college women have sent them letters saying, I was going to abort my baby, but now I am not, because I saw what it means. And I recognize that in a congregation of this size, there may be people here that have participated in abortion. But if you're a Christian, you also understand that now there is no condemnation that even though you know that that is a sin, Christ has paid for that sin. But CBR, they have so many different projects where they're trying to help women understand the atrocity of abortion, that it truly is child sacrifice to the God of convenience. And I have watched over the years as Greg and Lois have faithfully served in this ministry and I have watched their sacrifice and the sacrifice of many of those who volunteer with them. This truly is what I call the tip of the spear. They have had number of death threats. And they stand in the gap for these little ones when no one else will stand in that gap. But they would never call it sacrifice for themselves. They simply know that God has called them to serve. They give up their lives so that others can live and that's the question for us. Would we be willing to do the same? First thing we see this morning, what sacrifice does God call His people to give today? 
He calls his people to give over their lives to him. There's a second sacrifice. God calls his people to give their joyous praise to him. God calls us to give the praise of our lips. Worship, praise. What we did this morning, man, that was awesome. Worship this morning. Thanks, Rob, for leading that. Now, I only want to read verse 1 on this one, verse 27. It says, now at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites from all their places to bring them to Jerusalem so that they might celebrate the dedication with gladness, with hymns of thanksgiving, with songs to the accompaniment of cymbals and harps and lyres. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this, but the Christian life is not easy. Have you ever noticed that's hard? Right? The Christian life, I mean, it's hard to pray. It's hard to worship. Matter of fact, Paul, he likened it to a fight. He says, fight the good fight. Paul said it's like a race. We have to, to strive and constantly reach forward towards the goal. I mean, Paul also said, right, it's, it's like a sacrifice. It's a living sacrifice. So it's not easy. It's hard. It's continual. But can I tell you something? It's not always that. There are times when God gives us rest, and there are times when we need to celebrate There are times when we need to be joyous before the Lord. And I know that sometimes on a Sunday, you come here and you are beat up. I had somebody tell me this morning, right, man, it's hard. It was a hard week. I get it. I cannot tell you how many times I've come to this church and my head is down. But can I tell you, when the music starts and I start praising our Lord, my head is lifted up. And that's what worship is. That's what praise is. It lifts our soul And I love that it's here in Scripture and they have instruments and they're doing it together. And it's not on a small scale here. This is a gigantic worship service to celebrate what God had done on the walls. We see here one of the greatest examples of celebration in the Bible here in Nehemiah chapter 12. They're going to celebrate the beauty of what God has done with the people to rebuild the walls. Now, Nehemiah has completed the restoration of the walls, and he did that in 52 days after he arrived in Jerusalem on September 21st, 444 B.C. And he delayed the dedication of the wall because in the seventh month, they were going to have festivals. And so he needed to allow the people to have the feasts and the festivals. Well, all that has been taken care of. And so what Nehemiah does, he assigns worshipers on the walls. And we've seen already that he had workers on the walls and watchers on the walls, but now we're going to have worshipers on the walls. And we've also seen that the people, they have already dedicated their hearts unto God in chapters 8 through 10. The people surrendered themselves, they dedicated themselves to God, and now they're going to dedicate the work that they've done to God. This is the correct order. How can you dedicate a work to God if you haven't dedicated yourself to God, right? And so the proper order is now they're going to have this time of celebration. And what we see in this whole chapter, we see singing eight different times in the chapter, thanksgiving six times, rejoicing seven times, and musical instrument three times. This is a celebration of joy with praise, worship, and shouting, I think. I mean, this is true rejoicing. The people are ecstatic that God has done such a great work. 
Look at verse 27 again. It says, Now at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites from all their places to bring them to Jerusalem so they might celebrate the dedication with gladness, with hymns of thanksgiving, with songs to the accompaniment of cymbals and harps and lyres. And I want you to know that this is brilliant that Nehemiah does this. Think about a people that are downtrodden. Think about a people where it's been so difficult. Think about a people that they're finding it hard to understand why they have to move into the city that is dangerous. He wants to lift them out of depression, and He wants to bring them joy and celebrate what God has done. And I don't know if you guys, but I was trying to imagine the feeling of joy. We had a taste of it this morning, didn't you? When you start to, to sing and, and lift up our Lord and worship, there's a, there's a spark that happens in the heart, isn't there? And, and I was watching as the worship progressed, people's heads were starting to lift and the hands were starting to go up. And what is it? It's our hearts and our souls being lifted unto God. And joy is good. And God wants us to have a heart of joy. Psalm 30, verse 4 and 5 says, Sing praise to the Lord, you godly ones. Give thanks to His holy name. For His anger is but for a moment, but His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. This is a time of shout of joy. This is that morning time, that shout of joy time. But I want you to see something. Before they begin this worship service, they have a time of purification first. The people, they purify their hearts first. In verse 30, it says, the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they also purified the people, the gates, and the wall. And so, before they begin this time of praise, they make sure their heart is right before God. Isn't that what we should do as well? Sometimes I see some of you come here early, and I see you taking a time just to pray, pray and prepare yourself before you begin to, to come to worship. And actually, this should be our daily practice This is what's called the devotional life. This is called confession and repentance before the Lord. This is why 1 John 1.9 is in the Bible. 1 John 1.9 says that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is a part of the Christian experience, a part of our life, but they did it there too. They purified their hearts first before they bring praise to God. Now, Nehemiah and Ezra, they organized the whole event to honor God and and to lift up the people's spirits, and the order of the dedication service was unique. Ezra was going to lead one group, and Nehemiah was going to lead the other group, but Nehemiah is going to follow the choir. Verse 31, it says that, then I had the leaders of Judah come up on top of the wall, and I appointed two great choirs, the first proceeding to the right to the top of the wall toward the refuse gate. Verse 38 says, The second choir proceeded to the left while I followed them with half of the people on the wall above the tower of the furnaces to the broad wall. And so, from my study, I, I realized this is where they start. Nehemiah's group goes north. And now understand, you're talking hundreds of people, (laughs) and they're on the wall, and they're playing music, and they're singing unto the Lord, and his group goes up and works its way around. It goes past the old gate, the fish gate, the sheep gate, and I think this is where they end up around the inspection gate or the east gate. Ezra's group goes south, and they work their way from the dung gate, the fountain gate, the water gate, past the horse gate, up in this area here, and then all of them meet at the temple 
where they're going to have a great praise service and also sacrifices unto the Lord. And this is a time of true celebration. Now, now why does Nehemiah, why does he organize such a big praise service for the people? I mean, I begin to think about this. Think about this, guys. These are the people that built the walls. <laughs> These are the people that literally laid the bricks. Have you ever built something and then stood back and said, wow, I built that? I'm looking at Bobby here. He's built stuff all the time. But there's something about that, that you're actually part of it, and now they get to be on it and sing praises unto God. Now, if you remember, there were enemies that said, hey, if, if a fox jumps on that, it's going to fall down. There's hundreds of people on that wall. And they're singing praises unto God. And they're going around the city. And people for miles can hear them. So the first thing is, they were a part. But the second thing is, it's a witness. And wow, what a witness. I mean, if you're one of the pagan Gentiles in the surrounding areas, you knew God did a work. Not only because the walls are up, but because the people are worshiping their God. And understand that for the pagan, they thought that Jehovah, the Jews' God, is a weak God because they've been taken into captivity. No, 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 no. That God brought them back. That God has reestablished the city. They're praising that God. Wow, what a witness. And this section, it ends with joy and rejoicing. 43 says, And on that day they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced because God had given them great joy. Even the women and the children rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard from afar. Again, a joyful heart. Proverbs 22, 17, 22 says, A joyful heart is good medicine, but a broken spirit, it dries up bones. And I want you to understand the criticalness and the importance of worship. And I'm talking praise and worship. And as your pastor, I cannot stress to you enough the importance of you to be here to worship with us. And I'm going to tell you straight, it breaks my heart when you're not. And I don't know how some people can cut out part of the service because all of this service is meant to honor and worship God from the very first strung of the song to the very end when we close in prayer. It is all to honor Him. And I want to encourage you to be part of all of it. Because the Bible stresses that this is a critical part to honor God with the praise of our lips. I don't know if you understand how music works. You understand all things come from God, and God has designed music. And there's going to be an ongoing praise service and worship service in heaven. And we're to emulate that here on this earth. And did you know that praise is even good for little guys? I'm talking little guys. My friend John over here, he, pray, he sings with his kids all the time. But did you know Karen and I, we sing with our little buddies? What we like to do is we like to have praise songs in the car with little Dalton and little Oe when they're with us. And anybody here know Father Abraham? Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. And I am one of them. And so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Right arm, right? Now, hey, can I tell you, when we do that in the car, little Dalton's back there. Right arm, left arm, right foot, left foot, Father Abraham, right? <laughs> now, what does that do to a little heart? It helps them to grasp that this is fun, but they remember. And that's just one of many praise songs that we sing with our little buddies. 
But can I tell you something? Music seeps into the heart. You can talk to Joe Bernal. Almost every week he goes to a care facility and they have Alzheimer's and dementia. And do you know that many of them can't even talk? And I've been there. I, I, I ministered there for three years. And I would preach my heart out and they wouldn't get a thing. But as soon as we started singing a hymn, they knew every word. Couldn't talk, but they could sing because the Word of God put the song remained in their minds and was the last thing to go. Worship and praise, it's critical for us. Be a part of it here. Two things. God calls His people to give over their lives to Him. God calls His people to give joyous praise to Him. And the last one is, God calls His people to give their resources to Him. Their resources. Again, we've talked about this before, but all that I am and all that I have, it belongs to the Lord, and we're called to be a faithful steward of it. I'm just going to read verse 44. It says, On that day, men were also appointed over the chambers of the stores, the contributions and the first fruits and the tithes, to gather them into them from the fields of the cities of the portions required by the law for the priests and the Levites. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who served. Then, if you remember in chapter 10, verses 32 through 39, the people had committed that they would give faithfully unto God. Here we see that they're actually doing it. They're giving unto God. And it says that they were pleased to give their gifts. It gave them joy to give back what they knew God had given to them. And they also were pleased with the leaders. That meant that the leaders are being faithful. And can I tell you something? When a faithful leader faithfully serves, the people see that and they want to honor that and they want to honor God as well. Now, I'm not going to drag this thing out about giving. We literally, within the last two months, have had basically two messages that included giving, and so I don't want to belabor the point. My thinking is, understand, I just teach the text. What is God trying to tell you? This is like third time as a charm, right? <laughs> and so what, all I got to think is that there are people here that struggle in this area. That, oh, yes, Lord, I'm all in. Oh, yes, Lord, I trust you, except in this area. And I think God is calling us as a church to be faithful, be generous. Why? Because our Lord is generous and He's faithful. But what I thought I'd do is something a little bit different. I want to talk to you this morning about what God is doing with your gifts. I want to end the service with talking to you about the faithfulness of our God to this church and how when you give it, it impacts a lot not only in our community, but around the world. And I want to talk about it in four areas. On the screen, there are four areas I want to talk to you about. First is facilities. This is where we're sitting today. Do you know what, what it's like to own a building in Orange County now? God is so faithful to this church. And I remember in 2002 when, when He led us to get this building in, and how we agonized in prayer and whether or not we should take this big step of faith and how faithful God has been to us as a church. But understand that this facility that you're sitting in right now, it will be paid off in June of 2021. That's less than three years away. Yeah, praise the Lord. But this building, so much more happens in just the service. Understand, in this building during the week, we have a school meets here, a home school, with over 100 kids. We have little guys running all over the place around here. We do two different community Bible studies with over 100 in each, a men's Bible study that re reaches the community and a women's Bible study that reaches the community. 
We have a Chinese Bible study here every Saturday. We have a Persian church within our church. We have two Sunday services for those that can only speak Farsi and a midweek service that ministers to the Persian community facility. How about evangelism? The dollars that you give support reaching out with the gospel. Now, you know that we, we train people in evangelism, so we have an evangelism ministry that's called Go Ministry. It's starting up tomorrow, by the way, and by the way, we need women. And what we do is we have groups of threes that go out, and usually it's two men and a woman, and it helps when you walk up to a stranger somewhere to have a woman there so you can be a smiler. And I'd encourage you, if you just come and smile and be a part of that group, we share the gospel with people. But it's a training ministry. It's a discipleship ministry to train people how to share the gospel. It starts tomorrow on Monday. We also have discipleship in homes. As you know, we have home discipleship groups. We have 16 different home discipleship groups that are running through this church with over 200 people from our church involved. We are supporting missionaries, 34 different missionaries or missionary organizations that literally reach around the world. Over 13% of our budget goes to missions. There's over 50 men and 50 women that are in discipleship groups or in one-to-one mentoring. So that's 100 different people being mentored and discipled. We have a thriving youth group in this church. A number of leaders that serve in that. Somewhere between 60 and 80 youth every week come to this building. And we have one of the largest college groups in Saddleback Valley. I don't know if you knew that. Anywhere from 35 to 50 college kids meet every week. How about community? How do we reach out and fellowship in community? We have retreats and camps. And this year, we provided 30 different scholarships for the youth to go to winter camp this year. Now, that was a real hit for us financially as a church. But we do it because we don't want to hold anyone back from hearing the gospel and growing in their faith. We have 25, we gave out about 25 different scholarships for the women's retreat this year. We sponsor events like the summer series. We have men's and women's breakfast. We have worship nights. We sponsor fellowship in the park. Did anybody here go to the church in the park? We did that. We also did a, we did a Christmas banquet. We have two different campouts. In fact, as people are at the campout right now. How about assistance? We provide financially for a number of people to help them. We do benevolence for widows. We help the sick and the poor. We provide Christian counseling for some that need it. We have people that we're helping that are struggling with abuse. We provide pastoral counseling, but also pastoral mentoring. I could go on and on. God has been faithful. And what we see here in Nehemiah is that the people were faithful to give, so the ministry of the temple moved forward. And when we as His people are faithful, there's ministry that takes place. Amen? Bottom line, what we see this morning is that it's good to sacrifice, to sacrifice with our lives, to sacrifice with the praise of our lips, but also to sacrifice with what God has given us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your gifts, for Your goodness, for Your kindness. Lord, I'm so grateful to be a part of this church, and, and I love these people, Lord. I thank You that I'm friends with so many of them. And I thank you, Lord, that we have a true com community here. And so, Lord, I uh, put this church before you because it's your church, Lord. It's your body. And I praise you for the kindness that you've shown us and, and your constant provision and faithfulness to us. Help us and bless us. In Jesus' name, amen.